Hello, I'm John Hausladen, president of the Minnesota Trucking Association. Welcome back to our podcast, Trucking Success and Safety. In this episode, we hear from Chris Bauer and Kathy Close of J.J. Keller & Associates on what carriers need to know regarding the CDL Drug and Alcohol Clearinghouse. Thanks to J.J. Keller & Associates for sponsoring today's episode of the podcast. For more information, visit www.jjkeller.com. Now, let's get into the episode. I'm Chris Bauer of J.J. Keller & Associates. I'll be the moderator of today's presentation on the CDL Drug and Alcohol Clearinghouse. Our subject matter expert for this podcast is Kathy Close, editor of Transportation Safety. Kathy's career began at J.J. Keller in 1999, where she acted as third-party administrator, auditing driver qualification files, and managing DOT drug and alcohol testing programs. Since 2002, she has been in the role of transportation editor with a primary focus on driver qualification and DOT drug and alcohol programs. Welcome, Kathy. Let's start out with some basics. Who exactly is subject to the clearinghouse rule? Thanks, Chris. That's a really good question. A misunderstanding of whose subject can lead to fines and penalties and create some liability issues in the event a driver's in a crash. If you have a DOT testing program under the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration, which is under Part 32, you're subject to the clearinghouse requirements. If you're a motor carrier with non-CDL commercial vehicles, does this rule apply? The simple answer is no, even though the bulk of FMCSA's rules apply to these operations. Part 32, including the clearinghouse and subpart G, does not apply, even if the driver holds a CDL and isn't utilizing it. Kathy, what about workers under other DOT testing programs, such as pipeline, air, transit, maritime, or rail that happen to hold a CDL? Are they subject? Good question. Other U.S. DOT testing programs are not affected by this rule. These employers and their workers are not under the authority of FMCSA or its regulations. Testing violations under other modes should not be submitted to the clearinghouse, even if the employee happens to hold the CDL. You know, that brings up another interesting topic. How do non-DOT testing programs relate to the clearinghouse, specifically for those that hold a CDL? We know that a number of companies run DOT and non-DOT programs simultaneously, where someone is in an FMCSA, safety-sensitive position, maybe in both programs. Non-DOT testing must be completely separate from DOT. If a motor carrier has a non-DOT program, there are no DOT consequences for failing or refusing a non-DOT test. If the employee holds a CDL, The results of these non-DOT tests can't be reported to the clearinghouse. This is true regardless of whether a CDL holder operates a CDL-CMV with the carrier. The results are completely outside of the authority of FMCSA. How you handle failed non-DOT testing, well, that's based on company policy for that program. We always suggest carriers work with their HR department or an employment attorney to know what's permitted based on employment laws since FMCSA's rules don't apply. So let's go back to the basics in case this is new to some of our listeners. What is the Clearinghouse? It's an online database that houses information on a CDL driver's DOT drug and alcohol testing violations under Part 382. It also records whether a driver has gone through a substance abuse professional or SAP assessment and prescribed treatment program. 
And it indicates whether the driver has had a negative DOT return to duty test and has completed all the follow-up tests. Can you explain who provides information to the clearinghouse? Absolutely. The answer to your question, well, it's vital to making sure the database works as intended. Parties have to know when to report information so the driver's record is accurate. Employers and service providers have to report FMCSA drug and alcohol testing program violations. In order to report information, employers and service providers have to register with the clearinghouse. For motor carriers, creating an account is not optional even if they use third parties to handle parts of the testing program. Kathy, can you walk listeners through who specifically reports what violations to the clearinghouse? Sure, I'll start with the MRO. MROs receive volumes of information that may otherwise have gone undetected by employers without this reporting mechanism to the clearinghouse. Now, within two business days of determining that a driver has violated Part 382 of the testing rules, MROs have to report some information here. I'm going to give you a little list here. Uh, Verified, positive, adulterated, or substituted drug test results. They also have to report shy bladder situations without a valid medical explanation. And they also have to report driver admissions to them of adulterations in substituted specimens. And within one business day of making any changes to a test result, MROs must notify the clearinghouse. If I'm a motor carrier... What would I be expected to report? Well, let's start out how it can be reported. Motor carriers can perform reporting responsibilities directly, or they can contract with a designated consortium or third-party administrator, also referred to as a CTPA, to perform those required tasks. When the carrier learns of certain test results in certain types of violations, they have to submit them to the clearinghouse by the end of the third business day. This includes information that the MRO is not privy to, such as alcohol test results that are at 0.04 or greater, and certain refusal of test scenarios for both drug and alcohol tests, actual knowledge of a violation, any negative return to duty tests, and a driver's completion of a follow-up testing program. Kathy, you mentioned refusals to test. Can you elaborate? Certainly. Carriers need to report certain refusals to test scenarios that are defined in Part 40 and used in Part 382. Such examples are refusing to go for a test after being notified, not showing up for a test, arriving late for a scheduled test, leaving the collection site before waiting the required three hours when they were unable to provide an adequate specimen, failing to cooperate with the testing procedures, and there's um, also a driver's admission to the collector of adulterating or substituting their urine specimen. For alcohol testing, the company must inform the clearinghouse of a driver's inability to provide enough breath, also known as a shy lung situation, without having an acceptable medical reason. Going down the list you just provided, what is meant by actual knowledge? Yeah, that's an important definition that a carrier needs to grasp. Actual knowledge is defined in Section 382.107. It's the motor carrier's knowledge that the driver used drugs or alcohol. And this can be learned through the employer's direct observation of the employee or information provided by the driver's previous employer, or it could be a traffic citation for driving a CDL CMV while under the influence of alcohol or drugs, which might be a traffic ticket or a violation on a roadside inspection, 
or it can be learned by an employee's admission of alcohol or drug use. But the driver's admission during a voluntary self-identification program, and that's in Section 382.121, does not qualify as actual knowledge. You mentioned that a driver's evaluation, treatment, and follow-up programs are reported to the clearinghouse. How is the status tracked by the clearinghouse? If a driver has a violation under Part 382 and is reported to the clearinghouse, the driver will be in what they call a prohibited status until the required steps are communicated to the database. The first step is an SAP evaluation, followed by treatment, and then a second SAP evaluation. But these completed steps can't be reported by the SAP without the driver's permission. Drivers with an unresolved testing violation have to register with the clearinghouse for a personal account where the driver must designate the SAP and you're selecting them from the list in the clearinghouse. The SAP has to notify the clearinghouse within one business day after completing the initial evaluation. And then after a driver completes treatment and education, the SAP has to report that within one business day. At that point, SAP would issue a letter indicating the driver is ready for return-to-duty testing and indicate the prescribed follow-up testing. Once an employer receives the SAP letter, they can send the driver for the return-to-duty test. At this point, is the driver still in a prohibited status in the clearinghouse? Yes, until the employer reports a negative return-to-duty test. Remember, the MRO only reports failed tests. Reporting this negative test result is the employer's obligation. Once that's received, the prohibited status comes off. The status of the follow-up program is also tracked in the clearinghouse via employers. Employers have to report when a driver has successfully completed all follow-up tests. Otherwise, the driver's record will show the follow-up testing as incomplete. But employers don't report each individual follow-up test. One final party that needs to submit information to the clearinghouse is the consortium. Kathy, can you please cover their role? Sure. Let's start by explaining what a consortium is. It manages a random selection with multiple small carriers pooled together. As you may know, an owner-operator who is not leased onto a motor carrier's program must belong to a consortium to be pooled with other drivers for random testing. And when that's the case, the consortium must comply with the employer's portion of the clearinghouse rule by submitting data as it relates to this individual's alcohol or drug use. However, independent owner-operators, meaning not leased to another carrier, can request their annual queries personally and don't need a consortium to perform that service unless they want to. We'll cover the queries in a little bit. Often, a CTPA will manage random selections for operations that have more than one single driver. What are the reporting obligations in that case? Designated CTPAs may also submit testing information on other occasions for operations with more than one driver, if they're designated to do so based on service agreements with the employer. As with any services provided by a third party, the motor carrier is still held responsible for compliance with the requirements if it's reporting the motor carrier's portion of the clearinghouse data. So data goes in, but does it ever come out? Yes, it does. Drivers who violate DOT testing rules and are reported to the clearinghouse will have information in the database until certain criteria are met. First, the driver has to complete all the steps in the return-to-duty process 
including the negative return to duty test and up to the very last follow-up test, and five years have to pass since the original violation. For example, let's say a driver has gone through treatment and passed the return to duty and all the follow-up tests in 14 months. The clearinghouse will still have information about their violation and follow-up testing for another four years or so until five years have elapsed since the original violation. Or let's say a driver doesn't go for treatment until six years after the violation. The five years since the violation has been satisfied in that case. So as soon as the driver's final follow-up test is completed, the violation should come off the clearinghouse. So as you can see, the record-keeping timeline is longer than under the current rules, where you only have to check with the previous employers going back three years, and testing records only have to be kept for five years at most. Keep in mind that with so much on the line for both the driver and the carrier, it's very important that timely, accurate information be provided to the clearinghouse. You alluded to the queries a moment ago. Can you explain these reports? Yes, there are two types of reports, or queries, that a motor carrier is expected to request, depending on the circumstances. There's a limited query, which just states whether there is information on the driver in the database. And then there's the full query, which gives you the full details on the driver's data if the driver has a record in the clearinghouse. It will let you know if the driver is in a prohibited status, what steps are completed or outstanding, such as the SAP evaluation and treatment, return to duty test, and the follow-up testing program. Before the clearinghouse will release the data for either of these query types, the employer must obtain consent from the driver. For limited queries, a written or electronic consent outside of the clearinghouse is collected by the employer. If the limited query shows there's data available, a full query must be requested within 24 hours of the limited query. This is true even if you think it's a testing violation you're already aware of. For example, Maybe the carrier is working with the driver to complete a follow-up program, or the driver already completed a follow-up program. You can't assume that the information on the driver's record relates to just that known violation. You have to request the full query within 24 hours to make sure there isn't a new unresolved violation. The full information can't be released unless the driver submits an electronic consent in the driver's personal clearinghouse account. The driver must provide consent to the employer for any query. If the driver refuses, the company is unable to use the driver in a safety-sensitive function. On what occasions are queries requested? Let's start with the pre-employment query. At time of hire, a full query is requested. It lets the carrier see if the driver is in a prohibited status and what, if any, steps remain following a violation. What if a testing violation occurs between the pre-employment query and the driver's hire date? FMCSA will notify the employer if any information is entered into the clearinghouse about a driver during a 30-day period immediately following an employer's conducting a pre-employment query of the driver's record. However, they won't do that with the annual queries. And speaking of annual queries, that's our other occasion for queries. A carrier must request, at minimum, a limited query on existing drivers. Now, going back to our new hires. Similar to the annual MVR, you have a year to request the first annual query. But carriers can submit a batch request and have all current drivers on the same rotation for that annual query, just like many do for annual MVRs. In our example of a driver who has had a violation in the system that the carrier is aware of, 
the carrier has the option of always requesting a full query on the current driver for that annual query. Otherwise, they have to request a full query after the limited query every time the report shows a driver has a clearinghouse record. How long do you have to retain your query requests? The queries are retained for three years. You can download the reports if you want your own electronic or hard copies, but record keeping can be accomplished by storing the queries in the motor carrier's clearinghouse account. The limited query consent form is kept for three years from the last time it was used. In other words, if you have a consent that's worded in a way that it's valid for all annual queries for duration of employment, it will be kept for three years from the last report it was used for. Will a new employer still have to contact former DOT-regulated employers to ask about DOT testing history? That's a really good question. Yes. From January 6, 2020 until January 5, 2023, there will be two separate DOT drug and alcohol inquiries you have to make. First, you have to request the DOT testing history, and that's via the safety performance history, sent to current and former DOT-regulated employers, and you have to perform that pre-employment query of the clearinghouse. The clearinghouse query has to be done before the drivers perform a safety-sensitive function, unlike the safety performance history inquiry, which gives you 30 days to either get a response from those other employers or document your effort to get it. As of January 6, 2023, pre-employment queries on CDL applicants are the sole means of learning of any previous FMCSA testing violations. The drug and alcohol portion of the safety performance history inquiry for your CDL drivers will no longer be required. Motor carriers would still be responsible for requesting the general employment verification and the DOT crash history. So if I can summarize, motor carriers still need to contact former employers for FMCSA testing history for now. But in January 2023, the safety performance history will remove the FMCSA testing portion from the inquiry? That's correct. So when would you ever contact a former employer about DOT testing after January 6, 2023? Well, when a motor carrier learns of a violation through the clearinghouse, it must contact the former employers directly if it doesn't show that the follow-up testing plan was completed. This would require the driver sign a written consent in order for the former employer to release details. Another instance would be when the employee worked under another mode of DOT transportation and was tested under Part 40 procedures. The motor carrier would have to reach out to the former employer since this information is not housed in the new database. Again, you need the driver's consent, and that's true even today. Any final thoughts on the clearinghouse as we draw to a close? Yes. In order for the clearinghouse to function as it was designed, Each party has to submit the required data in a timely fashion, and employers have to utilize it to identify those drivers who violated testing rules and who may be in a prohibited status or in need of follow-up testing. In addition, it's vital that motor carriers understand definitions so they report accurate information to the portal. If they misunderstand, for example, the definition of a refusal to test, They can either fail to report a violation, leaving someone who is potentially hindered by drugs or alcohol behind the wheel, or report a violation that didn't exist affecting a driver's career. Thanks a lot, Kathy. You presented a lot of good information today. We hope you enjoyed the content. To learn more about J.J. Keller & Associates, please visit us at jjkeller.com. 
That concludes this episode of Trucking Success and Safety. Thank you again to J.J. Keller and Associates for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Thanks for listening and make sure to follow us on all podcast streaming platforms, including Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeart, or listen through our website at www.mntruck.org slash podcast.